Welcome to Passion. For more information about Passion, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. To share with you the gift that my parents are to me. They raised me in the uh, admin, the, the, the uh, direction and, and sent me off into life with all the tools necessary because they modeled for me what it means to love the Lord and serve the Lord. And so it's always a privilege for me. I'm trying to get my, my own kids to hear my father minister the word as often as possible. I got to do, do that all through my life uh, and, and got to be a part of that. And now I'm trying to expose them and at the same time expose you to the great uh, gift that resides in my father. So this morning, our other youth pastor, uh, my dad, Bob Ely, is going to come. I'm joking. He, he thinks that's funny. I think he likes it. He'd be all right if I called him a youth pastor all the time. He still does youth camps, even now, and the young people love him, and we're just delighted that he's going to get to bring the word this morning, and then Woody will be bringing the word in the second service. Would you please welcome my father, Bob Ely? Well, it's wonderful to have the youth choir. They keep you young, don't they? And like, uh, like I always say, uh, the music, they like it loud. And uh, we older people, we have to have it loud in order to hear it. So it, it all balances out that way. But it is a pleasure to be here with you this morning and to worship the Lord with you. Uh, Judges chapter 13, verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came unto me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God, very terrible or awesome. But I asked him not whence he was, neither told he me his name. But he said unto me, Behold, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and now drink no wine nor strong drink, neither neither eat any unclean thing, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now the distinction in this portion of Scripture is that when she repeats the message of the angel, prophetically she changes it. The angel said, he will be a Nazarite from the moment of his birth, from the womb. But she said, when she told her husband, he will be a Nazarite from the moment of his birth, from the womb, until the day that he dies. Chapter 16 and verse 21. But the Philistines took him, put out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with feathers of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Verse 29. And Samson called unto the Lord. And said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, and which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. 
And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people were therein, so that the dead that he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. I want to talk to you about a second glory or a second time around. Where we're in the book of Judges, and we're immediately introduced to a lady that is pregnant with destiny. For the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and simply said, You are barren, but now you will conceive and birth a son. You will bear spiritual fruit in a land that is under spiritual bondage. And when this son is birthed, he will be a deliverer. He will be a champion. He will be a judge. He will deliver Israel, the nation, the people of God, out from under the hand and the burden and the occupation of the Philistines. But in order to understand that portion of Scripture, you need to know the context and the setting. Because now we are in the book of Judges. And it follows hard upon the book of Joshua. And Joshua is the Savior. Joshua is the Deliverer. Joshua, that apprentice, that servant of Moses, that at Moses' death, God says, now you will complete the task. And the same spirit that was upon Moses will be upon you. And you will bring the children of Israel out of their wilderness wanderings into the land of their inheritance that I promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not only will you conquer that land and drive out the, the Canaanites, but you will divide that land for an inheritance unto the people. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon Joshua. The glory of God is revealed to Joshua. The anointing of the Lord sets him apart. And with that mighty hand and power of God, he routes the Canaanites and divides the land as an inheritance unto the children of God. The Bible said there was never a time like that. Battle after battle, the glory of God is revealed. The Canaanites are routed from Jordan all the way to Jericho. The five wicked kings of the Canaanites. For God fights for Israel. Not only does he cast hailstones down from heaven, but as, Mo, as Joshua prays, the sun stands still and God's people win the victory. Joshua, the book of conquest, the book of conquering, the book of a great glory. And then at the end of that book, Joshua has two meetings. He draws the children of Israel together, the elders that had served with him. And he binds them to the covenant agreement with Jehovah God. And he tells them explicitly, do not leave the task undone. Continue to battle. Continue to fight. Drive out the Canaanites or there will be a thorn in your flesh. They will be a pain in your side. And then he calls all the nations together. And again, he says to them, you must complete the task. Don't stop short. With the anointing of God, drive out the inhabitants of the land or they will constantly be a source of pain and problem to you. And he binds the people to an oath. And he says, choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He puts a stone under the oak tree at Shechem where the tent of God's glory is as a testimony that they will complete the job. But they don't. In fact, in three short generations, the Bible says that the people served God all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great works that he had done for Israel. 
But after that, there rose up a third generation, another generation that had never seen the works of God and knew not the Lord. And they failed to complete the task. We call it incomplete mastery. They did not master their enemies. They left them in the land. And because they did not drive out the ones God told them to drive out, they began to intermarry. And out of that intermarriage, they turned to idolatry and they broke their covenant relationship with God. And they established a cycle that was repeated for generation after generation. Israel would sin. They broke their covenant agreement and they turned to the idols of the nations around about them. And because of that sin, God brought servitude. Because sin always brings bondage. We are either a servant unto God, unto righteousness, or we are a servant of sin unto death. You can't have it both ways. And because they broke their relationship and went into sin, God brought them under physical persecution and bondage and servitude. And in the midst of that servitude, the very nations they were supposed to have driven out now had them in their grip and under their occupation. In the midst of that servitude, they would make supplication to God. They would cry out to God, and God would hear their prayer. And out of that supplication, God would raise up a Savior. He would raise up a champion, a deliverer, a, a, a judge over Israel. And the Spirit of the Lord would come upon this champion, and he would rout the Philistines, or rout the Moabites, or rout the Canaanites, and deliver Israel from their bondage. And all the life of the judge, Israel would serve God. And the moment he died, they would repeat the cycle all over again. They would go back to sin. They would go back to their compromise. That would bring servitude, servitude for 20 years, for 40 years. And ultimately they would cry out to God in supplication. And God would hear and raise up a savior and a deliverer and a judge and a champion. And he would set the people free. And they would simply turn again to their sin. And that's what we're introduced to. For now we're in the book of Judges and 12 times, 6 major times, Israel finds themselves not in conquest but in bondage. And now they've been in bondage to the Philistines for 40 long years. And the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife and he says, you will conceive in this land of spiritual barrenness. Just as you are barren, the land is barren. But now the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive a child and that child will be a deliverer and the glory of God will come upon him and the anointing of the Lord through him will deliver the children of Israel from their bondage. Therefore, you are pregnant with destiny. And if you're pregnant with destiny, you have to live different. I mean, you can't abort the destiny of God. You can't abort the glory of God that is about to be revealed. You cannot abort the champion and the deliverer that God wants to use to set the people free. Therefore, you must live different. No strong drink, nothing from the fruit of the vine. Do not eat any unclean thing because you are pregnant with God's destiny and with God's purpose and with God's glory that's going to be revealed. <clears throat> and when that boy's born, his name will be Samson. He will be a distinguished one. He will be the distinguished deliverer and the judge of God's people. And this is the commandment of the Lord from his womb. 
from his birth, he will be totally dedicated to God. He will live in complete devotion to God. He will be a Nazarite from his womb. And to understand what it means to be a Nazarite, you have to go back to the book of Numbers chapter 6. And you have to discover that in this vow, this Nazarite vow of dedication and devotion, there were three parts to that vow. The first thing, the Nazarite could have nothing to do with strong drink. Nothing from the fruit of the vine. Nothing to do with grapes. He couldn't eat raisins. He, he, couldn't, have, he couldn't even touch the kernels. Nothing to do with strong drink. Secondly, he could have nothing to do with deadness. If there was any dead bone or dead body that he couldn't go to his mother's funeral, his father's funeral, his, his brothers, his sisters, because the moment he did, he was defiled and his vow was broken and he lost that separation to God. God had not called him unto death. God had called him unto life. And not only could he not only touch anything from the fruit of the vine or any deadness that was around him, but he was to allow his hair to grow and to braid it into seven locks. And that long hair, though it was a shame in society, it became a mark of distinction to his relationship to God. He's basically saying, I'm willing to be ridiculed in society in order that I can be totally dedicated and devoted and separated unto God. That's what the Nazarite vow was all about. And the angel said, he will have that glory. He will have that anointing. He will have that dedication from the moment of his birth. In fact, it literally meant three things. It meant, first of all, he would be disciplined in his appetite. Secondly, he would be distinctive in his associations. He's not going to associate with dead things. And thirdly, he's going to be different in his appearance. Now, don't misunderstand. Most people view Samson as Arnold Schwarzenegger or Hulk Hogan or some great big bodybuilder who is a great massive fit. No. He was a man just like anybody else. There was nothing physically that separated or distinctly distinguished him from anyone else. The difference was that he was totally dedicated to God. He was a Nazarite from the moment of his birth. And out of that dedication, out of that devotion, there flowed his destiny. You're not with me. Do you understand that your destiny that the glory that God wants to use through you flows not from your physical ability nor your own natural talents, but it always flows out of your dedication and your devotion to God. And as long as he's dedicated and devoted to God, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon him. The glory of God will overshadow him. He shakes himself and the power of God manifests itself through him. And he does exploits for God. And from his birth, He's a Nazarite. And immediately God begins to use him. In fact, the Bible put it like this. The Spirit of the Lord began to move him between the camps of Dan and Estol. And he begins to do exploits for God. And the destiny and the purpose of God flowing out of that devotion and dedication and that commitment begins to manifest itself. The Bible said he went down to Timnath. And all of a sudden a young lion came against him. You, you know you've got to kill the lion while he's young. Now, if you don't kill the lion while he's young... He grows older and stronger, and the next time you face him, you're in trouble. It will, okay. So, so you got to kill him while he's young. And that young lion roars out against Samson, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him because he's devoted to God, and he takes that young lion and tears him in two pieces and destroys him like he would a little goat. And then he goes down to Philistine. 
in order to find a wife. And we'll get back to that in a moment. And when he does, he gives a riddle. And you remember his wife, uh, they, the way he says it is so funny in the scripture. He said, you plowed with my heifer. That's if you go study that one. And his wife betrays him. And to fulfill his vow, he has to have 30 changes of clothes. And so the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And he kills 30 of the Philistines and takes their clothes to pay his debt. And then you know that he goes up to Edom. And the, the leaders of Judah bind him with ropes. And the Philistines come upon him. And all of a sudden, those ropes are broken like they've been touched by fire. And he takes uh, the, the newly dead uh, uh, jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand. He, he, he sets uh, 300 foxes and ties their tails together and sets the Philistines' fields on fire. And there's a great slaughter. And the Bible said he destroyed them from hip to thigh. And then he goes down to Gaza, the stronghold of the Philistines. And he takes the gates of the city and puts them upon his shoulder and carries them over into Judah. And the gates of the city are the sign of the strength and the government and the power of that nation. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. The glory of God is upon him. He's fulfilling his destiny because that destiny flows from his dedication and his devotion and his Nazarite vow. And for 20 years he judges Israel. The champion, the distinguished one, the deliverer. And the devil doesn't like it because that's the devil's job. He is like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. And if he's not a roaring lion, then he is an angel of light that doesn't devour but attempts to deceive. For Jesus said, the thief has come to steal, to snatch away your glory. To snatch away your experience. To snatch away your dedication. To snatch away that destiny. The thief not only steals, but he kills. He deadens your enthusiasm and your dedication to God. And he not only kills, but he destroys. And the word there in the Greek does not mean the loss of your being. Not that he physically destroys you and you die, but it's the loss of your well-being he wants to take away your glory if he can destroy your devotion if he can take away your dedication your destiny will never be fulfilled the purpose of God will be thwarted and so the enemy comes to attack Samson and how does he do it he's going to attack him at his as a weakness no that's what we always think and I know he does at times but most of you already know your weakness and because you know what your weakness is, you set a guard there. You, you, you pray more about that situation in your life than you do in any other situation because you know it's the area of your weakness. You set external guards. You set fences. You set accountability groups. You make sure that your weakness is covered so that, no, the enemy attacks you at your strength. He comes against the source of your power the source of your glory he comes against your dedication and your devotion and you know how you do it in Samson's life well there were three parts of the Nazarite vow first of all no drunkenness can't have anything to do with the fruit of the vine don't have anything to do with grapes where did Samson spend all of his time in the country of Judah in the land of the Danites among God's people no he took a wife of the Philistines. He went down to Timnath. When he went down to Gaza, he went to see a prostitute. Ultimately, he winds up in the lap of Delilah, who is a Philistine priestess in the temple of Dagon. 
So he was constantly living not with God's people, but in the tents of the Philistines. And what are they noted for? Drunkenness. Their god Dagon is half man and half fish. He, he, he was the god of wine. He was the god of orgies. He was a god of physical pleasure. And so instead of spending his time with the people of God, he now is violating his Nazarite vow by spending all of his time in the tents of those that do nothing but drink. And the enemy wants to destroy your dedication, your devotion. And you know how he does it? He wants to get you intoxicated. He wants to get you drunk, inebriated. He wants to get you drunken with other things because when you get intoxicated with other things then he thwarts the destiny and the purpose of God and he takes away your glory well you're quiet this morning you know what he does he tries to get us intoxicated with passion what's wrong with David I mean he's the king but instead of going out to battle for that anointing upon David was a princely anointing and it was to bring down the strongholds of the enemy. He stays in Jerusalem and he sees the nakedness of Bathsheba and he becomes inebriated and drunken and intoxicated with passion. And instead of averting his attention, he sins for information. He doesn't need to sin. He knows who she is. She is the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is his most trusted advisor. She grew up in his courts. He knows who she is, and she, he knows whose she is, Uriah's. And yet he is inflamed and intoxicated and drunken with passion, and he sins for her and sins against God and destroys Uriah by the sword of his enemy. What's wrong with him? He has lost his glory. He's lost his devotion and his dedication. If you don't believe that, you read Psalm 32 when you get home. The hand of God was daily against me. My bones waxed old and my moisture became like the summer drought and all that anointing and all that glory that God had given me, the destiny to fulfill, was gone because he became intoxicated upon passion. And it destroyed his dedication. But what are you being intoxicated with? What cup are you drinking from? To Solomon was possessions. Oh, if I just have more temples and more stones and more wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines, this guy's supposed to be smart. That's not smart. That means you'd have a thousand mother-in-law. Something's wrong with that picture. And at the end of his life, he said, Wait, everything that I tried to fill my life with and I became intoxicated on was vanity of vanities and vexation of spirit was empty and hollow in it. Couldn't take the place of my relationship with God. And then some people, it's pride. And others, it's position and power. And before you know it, we become intoxicated drunken on other things rather than God. You know what happens when you become drunken and inebriated? You can't talk straight. You slur your words. You can't walk straight. You stagger. Amen. You can't see straight. You lose your vision. And you can't think straight because when you're intoxicated on other things, you will rush in places that you normally would have avoided. If he had been thinking straight, he would have never gone to, to Timnath. He would have never gone to Gaza. He would have never put his head in Delilah's lap. But he is intoxicated and he's 
breaking that vow of devotion and dedication to God. And if he can't get you there, then he gets you with dead bones. He's not to have anything to do with the dead. If somebody suddenly dies, he's contaminated, and all the years of his vow is lost until he becomes clean again. And yet what happened to Samson? He's constantly surrounded by dead. He killed the lion. He killed 30 of the Philistines. He killed a 1,000 with the jawbone of a dead donkey. And every time he's supposed to be dedicated to God, he allows the dead bones to contaminate and break his vision and his glory and his destiny. Don't you remember? He goes back to the dead carcass of the lion. And bees have made honey in it. And he reaches out to touch the honey to get the sweetness of that past victory. And when he does, he touches deadness. And his bow's broken. And when he's ready to go out to battle against the Philistines, he picks up the jawbone of a newly dead donkey. He uses weapons that he's not supposed to use. And the moment he touches that jawbone, that deadness, his dedication's broken. And you know what the enemy does to you? Every time you get at the point to where God wants to flow his glory through you and fulfill his destiny and his purpose, he begins to drag up the dead bones. Oh, I'm the only one he does that way? Most of us spend most of our time at spiritual wakes. So I was raised in southwest Oklahoma, and the Indians would have all-night services before the funeral, and somebody set up all night with the body. That's a wonderful job. And yet some of you are setting up at night after night with the deadness of your past. Some of you are contaminated by the dead bones of a painful past. What happened 30 years ago and 40 years ago and 50 years ago or 6 months ago. And because of the devil dredges up the deadness of your past, he says you, a deliverer, a distinguished one, the destiny of God, he can't use you. But I want to tell you what, your sins are as far as the east is from the west, cast into the sea of forgetfulness. Therefore, we are now justified by faith, uh, just as if we had never sinned and we have peace with God. It's like an evangelist came and he's one of these guys that would speak words and do prophetic utterances, you know, and he'd call people out of the audience and, and ever, it stirred the whole little community. And finally, the Presbyterian pastor and his wife came to see what was going on. And she's sitting on the pew, and he stands up, and he looks back in the middle of the sermon. He said, the Lord said, you've committed a great sin in your past. Now everybody's on the edge of their seat because they want to know what it is. And he repeats it. He said, the Lord said, you've committed a great sin in your past. And I said, Lord, what is it? And the Lord said, I don't remember because he will never remember your sins against you again. You are free from the dead bones and the deadness of your past. But if he can't contaminate you with the pain of your past, he'll contaminate you with the power of your past. Because Samson went to see that line. He had destroyed that line with his own hands. That's a victory. But in trying to reach out and take the sweetness from the line, he contaminates himself. Oh, you can go back to the victories God's given you. And you can stand there and say, thank you, Lord, for the manifestation of your glory and for the victory that you've given me. But you can't live there. There's no sustenance there. You can't stay in that powerful past. You have to fulfill the destiny that God's called you to, and it flows out of your dedication and your devotion. And if he can't get you with the deadness, then he gets you with the decoys, the Delilahs. 
temple prostitute. See, the problem with Samson was he could kill a lion, but he can never control his own lust. Read his story. When he's at gazes at the house of a prostitute, he tries to marry a Philistine wife. And now you seem finally, after 20 years of operating in the glory of God, and his head is in the lap of Delilah, and it is the decoy of the devil to destroy his destiny. And she says, if you love me, you'd tell me the source of your strength. See, if it were physical, she could see that. It's not, it's not physical. It's the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. Taking your abilities and your talents that God's created you with. For you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he's lying there. And he begins to toy with his destiny. And he says, if you would take seven vines that are green and bind me. She does. Your enemy is upon you. He breaks them. You toyed with me. You're not telling me all of your heart. Don't you love me? He said, if you'd take seven new ropes and bind me with those new ropes, I'd be like any other man. She does. Your enemy is up on you. Breaks them. And then she begins to worry. But you don't really love me. Or you'd tell me the source of your power. And he said, if you would, now listen, if you would take the seven locks of my hair and weave them in a weaver's beam, my source of strength would be gone. The enemy comes in and, and he picks up the beam and 